Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the MCG Pediatric Podcast. My name is Zach Hodges, and I'm a pediatrician here at the Medical College of Georgia. Today, we have a very special episode for you, and I'm excited to be joined by my friend, Dr. Charles Scarborough. Charles is a graduate of the Medical College of Georgia and the MCG Pediatric Residency Program. He is currently a practicing primary care pediatrician here in the Augusta community. Hey, friend, welcome. Hey, Zach. It's a pleasure to be here. On today's episode, Charles is here to share with us the story of his son, Jude, and their experience with his diagnosis of 22Q11 deletion syndrome. All of this while his family was serving in medical missions in Cusco, Peru. Before we get started, I wanted to make one comment. Here at the MCG Pediatric Podcast, we are committed to producing a welcoming environment for all learners. In this episode with Dr. Scarborough, a discussion of his faith was key to their story. The views expressed regarding faith and spirituality belong solely to our guest and are not specifically endorsed by the Medical College of Georgia or Augusta University. We hope that you will enjoy this very interesting discussion. To get things started, do you want to tell us a little bit about your family and maybe why you chose to leave your growing private practice and move to Cusco? Sure, Zach. Um, I'll try to keep it short because I have a tendency to be long-winded, but my wife and I had always enjoyed serving overseas in short-term missions throughout medical school. My wife was in college and always had the thought in the back of our minds we might move overseas full-time, but then we had four babies, two during residency. Life got super busy, and then we remember one Sunday at church, a missionary came back and asked for people to pray about coming and serving in Peru. So we committed to praying In my mind, I was praying for other people to go because we had just started a practice that was finally full. We'd bought a house that we thought was going to be our, quote, forever house. But slowly, I just felt God was calling us there and didn't really know what to do. And frankly, I was terrified. So my wife and I began to pray together. And within about 12 crazy months, we ended up selling our house and selling all of our stuff and starting to raise support to move full time to Peru with our four boys. So at the point you decided that moving to Cusco was the right decision for your family, what was the next step? Did you just move directly to Cusco, or was there a process to learn the language and the culture? That's a great question. Uh, We didn't have a clue what we were doing and really honestly didn't think that we were ever going to be of any use overseas in another language. We went to the mission agency called Mission to the World and started their application process. We had to start raising support. And then we went to Brussels, Belgium, where all six of us were in one hotel room for almost five weeks for some cultural training exercises from people all over the world. Then about two weeks after that, we checked 25 bags, four kids under the age of seven, and a whole lot of fear. And we landed in Lima, Peru. And then we got another flight from Lima, had to uncheck 25 bags without speaking Spanish and recheck 25 bags and had four screaming children. Uh, We almost landed in the destination of Arequipa, Peru, where we were going to do language school when the plane suddenly turned and returned back to Lima. The guy said something on the overhead speaker in Spanish that I did not understand while we did not land. Three of my children began to vomit violently, um, and we landed back in Lima with all 25 of our bags, three kids without clothes on, trying to figure out how to get another flight without speaking Spanish. Finally, we got on another flight, and we arrived to Arequipa at our language school in the middle of the night, about midnight, where some random dude from the language school who spoke broken English dropped us off at a house and said, this is where you're going to live. And we unpacked. After about 10 months of a super humbling time learning language and learning culture, we passed our fluency test and then we moved to Cusco. Wow. I absolutely can't imagine going through all that. So you spent time in Arequipa, learning the language, learning some of the culture. Can of tell us about the clinic that you actually started serving at in Cusco and maybe about some of the people as well? 
Yeah, so the clinic was called Clinica La Fuente. I mean, it was a clinic in the southern part of town near one of the big open-air markets that served the more underserved people of Cusco, mostly the um, Quechua people, um, and they are descendants from the Inca. Our clinic was growing. It had pediatric care, adult medicine care, some OBGYN care, physical therapy. We had full eight-chair dental office. We had ophthalmology, and we were able to last year I was there, there was 38,000 patients that were cared for during that year. One of the really cool things about the clinic is the ophthalmologist that's there is the one who has really grown the clinic. And he started a refractory laser program, was able to raise $1.2 million and buy a brand new Zeiss refractory laser and start using that to make the clinic self-funded. The last two years that I was there, the clinic was completely self-sustained without outside donations from the United States, which was pretty amazing. However, recently, the COVID shutdowns there were even more strict than here. They have been shut down now since March, only able to do some emergency surgeries, and they're trying to keep paying all their employees. They all recently ran out of oxygen in the hospitals. So if you don't have money now in Peru, Cusco specifically, um, you're not able to get care. People literally, I was just talking to my friend the other day, people dying in parks, and so it's pretty dire. I'll give the link to Zach if any of you feel um, interested in helping. Right now is a huge need for Clinica La Fuente until they can get out of quarantine and get the refractory laser back up to fund the clinic to keep it afloat. Um, and also, it also supports our orphanage, which we have 18 little babies there. Thanks, Charles. I'm happy to put that link in our description and our show notes on the website for any of our listeners who'd like to support. Kind of circling back how did your family transition to this new home and new culture? Wow. Um, it was rough, to be honest with you. There's you know, the, the initial excitement of this is where God has called us to serve and new culture, but it was very different from the culture that we're used to in the capitalistic American world. So we had lots of really hard times. My kids did not speak Spanish. They were put in a Spanish-speaking only school where they were bullied. My youngest son was kicked repeatedly and is growing and had a traumatic inguinal hernia that we had to fly back and let Robin Hatley here at Augusta University repair. It was hard. It was really good. It was really humbling for us to really reevaluate the lens that we see the world through and humbly learn another lens that other people see the world through and learn how to engage and to love and to serve within that cultural context. You know, it's hard for someone like me here in Augusta to really appreciate the lack of resources that you've already mentioned today. I mean, think about not having a surgeon available for your child. Think about not having oxygen in the hospital. I would encourage each of our listeners to consider supporting if you would like to try to help the healthcare needs of Cusco in this clinic. Kind of thinking about Jude, how long were you and your family in Cusco before he was sick? Now, looking back, um, we know that he was always a a little more sickly than the other children, but we were in Cusco for about 18 months, and honestly, it took about that long to learn a new subculture in Cusco to where we were able to make deep friendships and relationships with our neighbors within the local church and in our clinic, and we're finally feeling like that was home, and we wanted to stay there for quite some time. Getting amoebiasis there was very common. I guess that was January of 2019. Jude was eating Inca corn, which are these large grains of corn that are dried, and he aspirated a piece of Inca corn. He was able to cough up a lot of it, but still had crackles on the right side, so we ended up using a commercial flight and flying him back here for Drew Prosser to do a bronch and a lavage. 
And he returned back to Cusco with my wife about nine days later. When he got back, he had influenza and was running a high fever for about 10 days. And then two days after that, he started having bloody diarrhea and got really, really dehydrated. We started running IV fluids in our bed, started calling Chris White to get an ID consult on the phone and got a stool analysis there in Cusco, which apparently is not very accurate. And he was diagnosed with amoeba there. And so we started him on IV flagell and rocephin. About five days into the diarrheal illness, he started to perk up and was tolerating some liquids. We were able to stop IV fluids and hip lock his IV. And he started asking for food. And I remember distinctly him sitting on the couch playing with Paw Patrol and he was eating a cheesy Pringle. And I handed him a cheesy Pringle and he went into a full tonic clonic seizure. He fell to the couch. So at that time I was concerned, but I was not in panic mode yet. So I called my, yelled for my wife to grab the oxygen tank because we had one in home and our e-bag, which I had everything to intubate and put in central lines, but I did not have diastat. So we were, had to head to the hospital so we could evacuate. And then he went completely stiff. We didn't really know what was going on, whether that was status, epilepticus, or what. So I became a little more nervous. He was like that probably for a minute, seemed like eternity. And we loaded him up in the car with his, and my wife was checking pulses. She is a nurse from the burn ICU. And we got about halfway to the hospital, which is about a 10 minute drive. And we lost his carotid pulse. So my wife began CPR at that time. By the time we got to the hospital, which is really a generous term for where we went, we had regained a pulse and started the evacuation process, which we thought was like you get to push a button and magically people come get you. It took about 28 hours of screaming on the phone. There was no cell service in the hospital and where we were, so you'd have to run up and down the stairs to get outside and leave my wife inside with him. But he was still not back to his normal mental status at that point before we could evacuate to Lima, where we could get a little bit more quality health care. You know, Charles, every time I hear this story, I just feel like I'm hearing it for the first time again. So I get chills. I can't imagine what you and your wife were feeling. And I know this experience will be something that you'll never get past. But when you think about that experience now, what comes to mind? Yeah, that's a good question. It took about six months before I could tell that without crying. And I'm glad that we're in an office recording this and I can see my watery eyes now. It was It was horrific being in a place where there was nothing to do except wait on an evacuation team, not knowing his diagnosis and not knowing that he had a hypocalcemic seizure at the time. So it's been, yeah, it's been hard. You know, even reflecting back on it, there's days where I still have nightmares seeing his little blue face, pulseless, and my wife screaming, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead, doing compressions. Our kids are still deeply affected by it. So you get evacuated from Lima, you get back to Augusta, and kind of tell us about those next several weeks to months and kind of how Jude was eventually diagnosed with 22Q11. Yeah, so we were in Lima in the hospital for about five days where we got really great health care. There was pediatric subspecialists that were German trained. They were excellent. So he was stable at that point. In hindsight, just a little tidbit, I know this wasn't your question, but I'd always wondered how did his hypocalcemia get better when we didn't know it was hypocalcemia. And my wife and I were reflecting, and when he was in the ER bay, if you can call it that, when he was in what they call the ER bay, they had a bottle of D5W running. So I'm trying to kindly say in Spanish, actually, if you really want to see him seize again, keep that going, and his sodium will be 110. And the lady reassured me that she had put some stuff into the into the fluids. And I said, well, what kind of stuff? And in Spanish, she responded, the right kind of stuff. I mean, somehow in God's providence, she must have added calcium to his fluids in a right kind of stuff injection. 
So then we were in Lima for about seven days doing some trauma counseling for our children and for us. And we flew back to the United States to start getting some further evaluations at that point. Honestly, there was all kind of theories to his seizures. IV flagell can cause altered mental status, which it did in him, and it actually can cause seizures as well. So that was the running theory from the neurology team and from ID was that the IV flagell, this was an adverse drug reaction to IV flagell. I was not convinced. It just seemed like something else was going on. So we came back and we got Jim Carroll, our Augusta University's former neurologist, Honestly, Jim looked at me because Jim had served overseas as well. And he was like, we should do a chromosomal microarray because you could find something on OMIM that would show you, hey, he's got a high risk of seizures in the future. So I said, that sounds reasonable, Jim. We ordered the lab then and went to draw it and left, not thinking anything of it. Jude was getting better. He looked great. We kind of just said, okay, well, maybe it is flagell. So we bought tickets to return home to Cusco. We were driving to the airport. We'd just gotten to the curbside check-in at Delta in the Atlanta International Terminal and was unloading about 14 bags. And Josh Lane, another MCG graduate, called me on my cell phone, and he knew where I was. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, Josh, you know what I'm doing? He said, don't check your bags. Jude has the George syndrome. Um, And even as I say that, I just feel the weight of that phone call. Yeah, I remember distinctly just starting crying. My wife was like, speak to me. Tell me what's going on. What's going on? What's going on? And then my little son even knew something was up. He's like, is Jude going to die again, Daddy? Is Jude going to die again? So I walked outside crying, calling Retta Basali from MCG, general pediatrics, trying to get someone else to make a decision for me because there was some debate whether we should do the immunology workup here. Or should we just fly to Lima and do it? And we ended up coming back and doing um, the full DeGeorge workup here um, at the Medical College of Georgia. Wow. There's so many pivotal moments and like heart-wrenching moments in this story. So tell us, what did Jude's diagnosis with 22Q11 mean for your family? I think the best way to answer that question is it's been the stages. The initially, I just remembered the few things that I was taught in medical school and the few things that I saw in Severe to George patients. So I was thinking through those and thinking about the immediate medical implications for that fear for his life and grieving what you might have thought his future was going to be all hit me. Uh, At the same time, there was an immediate understanding that we could no longer go home. We could no longer go to the city that we loved, to the people that we loved, um, to the people that we longed to serve. So all of that hit us that day. I don't think we slept a wink that night before we drove over from Atlanta that morning. And it just has continued to unfold in different ways, which we'll talk about more later on. So I think this is a good time in our conversation to kind of pause and maybe circle back to what 22Q11 actually is. So so tell us more about that. Well, like I said before, I remembered very little about it, just enough to be terrified. And I was Dr. Googling from the Atlanta airport. Since then, having a child with 22Q has got me reading a lot. Um, So 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome is the most common microdeletion syndrome, and it's usually due to the deletion of about 50 genes on the long arm of chromosome 22 at the loci of Q11.2. There's also some critical genes in there that they're researching, one called the TBX gene, uh, which we'll talk a little bit more about in the future. It's about one in every 4,000 lives birth. Second to Down syndrome is the most common genetic syndrome that we see in the United States, and it's probably even more common than that. Um, as some patients don't get diagnosed until adulthood. 
It can be inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, but this is very much less common um, and it's usually less than about 10% of the cases. This mutation causes an abnormal development of the embryonic pharyngeal pout system that leads to a wide variability in physical manifestations that is not completely understood. As we'll talk about more in the future, even if you have the complete deletion, the phenotypic presentation is likely influenced by epigenetics, which is a growing research field. So how do most children present with 22Q11 deletion syndrome? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think classically, you know, you, the neonates present having cardiac abnormality. Most of the time gets them into an academic institution. They have hypoplastic thymus and hypocalcemia. Um, the heart defects are described as cotruncal abnormalities, which mostly result in poor development of the aorta and pulmonary arteries. Ventricular septal defects are most common. Tetralogy of Fallot, truncus arteriosus, interrupted aortic arch are also associated with 22Q11. In fact, some cardiac abnormality is found in more than 80% of these kids. And some studies would say, depending on the mutation that they have, would be up to 90% of the kids uh, with 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. And that's really significant. I knew about the aortic abnormalities, but there really are a broad range of cardiac defects. What else did you say we need to worry about? Thymic hypoplasia and hypocalcemia? Yeah, I mean, thymic hypoplasia can result in a wide range of T-cell defects from skids. Um, if there's complete absence of thymus, um, which in some of the mutations that involve the TBX gene... Uh, and skid being severe combined immunodeficiency. Correct. Yeah, yeah. and the next... Um, there's hypocalcemia um, due to parathyroid hypoplasia, causing hypoparathyroidism. And hypocalcemia can be very severe, leading to seizures. Most of the symptomatic hypocalcemia is more common in the newborn period. But in Jude's case, it took severe physiologic stress before his parathyroids couldn't keep up to cause his hypocalcemic seizures. And some of the kids can actually grow out of this. It gets better. Some people would say around the age of five, they improve that and not require calcitriol daily. So what are some other signs that might suggest the 22Q11 deletion? Yeah, that's a really great question, Zach. Other common features are developmental delay, craniofacial and renal abnormalities. Some kids have a submucosal cleft palate, which can lead to velopharyngeal or velopalatal insufficiency, where the soft palate does not close completely in the oropharynx, and they get a hypernasally speech, or they can have more air coming through their nose. Dr. Prosser here at AU did an excellent job to where doing a partial adenoidectomy relieved his obstruction, but preserved the part of the adenoid that was functioning as a palatal plug. Okay, so we have a lot to keep in mind. So far, we have developmental delay, heart defects, hypocalcemia, immunodeficiency, airway, and even renal abnormalities. What's the difference between 22Q11 and DeGeorge and velocardiofacial and conotruncal anomaly face syndrome that we learned about in medical school? Yeah, like we said earlier and alluded to, there's a wide variability in patients phenotypically with 22Q11.2 syndrome. All these syndromes are mostly different manifestations depending on specifics of the microdeletions that are included in the spectrum of a 22Q deletion syndrome. What's interesting is that the same exact microdeletion can have huge phenotypic variability. For instance, Jude has a 2.4 kilobase deletion that includes all the critical genes, including TBX, and has a relatively mild phenotypic expression. The kids with Jude's mutation, more than 90% have complete absent thymus and require bone marrow by the age of two. Jude has mild immunodeficiency. He was septic at the time we thought was amoeba, and that ended up being a rotoviral viremia. The different names for 22Q deletion syndrome really can become confusion, but really they are just 
descriptions in the past before we have advanced genetic studies to describe different phenotypic expressions of a 22Q11 microdeletion syndrome. So great. Now that we've reviewed some of the basics of 22Q11, I wanted to focus on how we can help our general pediatricians who might be considering this diagnosis in their clinic. Say, for instance, you have a young child in your clinic with a history of congenital heart disease and developmental delay. If you wanted to evaluate for 22Q11 deletion syndrome, what would be your next step? Yeah, I mean, first, I would say that most of these neonates that have congenital heart disease are going to already have a genetic workup now in 2020. On the other hand, kids that don't have heart disease like Jude, it's very, very common for them not to have a diagnosis until the age of three or four. They could have mild delay, could have just not quite meeting milestones or even delayed and then meeting their milestones. Genetic testing is really the only way to confirm this diagnosis. And this takes some level of clinical suspicion to think about when we're ordering that test. There are actually some pretty good published guidelines from 2011 that suggest when we should screen for 22Q. I would argue that we should screen more than the guidelines say. The take-home point is that we should think about sending genetic testing for any child that has two or more signs of 22Q11 syndrome. These include what we mentioned before, developmental delay, cardiac abnormality, any palatal deficiency, any mild immunodeficiency, hypocalcemia, or characteristic facial features. But I would say we probably should start screening in children that just have developmental delay. Also, we can't forget behavioral problems, psychiatric problems that are associated with 22Q. Very good. I'll be sure to link to the 2011 guidelines in our show notes. So what type of genetic test should we get to screen for 22Q11? Yeah, so historically, the testing was to order a fish for the critical region at chromosome 22Q11.2. And remind us, what exactly is fish again? Um, Fish is the acronym that stands for fluorescent in situ hybridization. So you got to remember this test uses two fluorescent probes. One probe is specific for chromosome 22, and the other is selected for the common deleted region at the 22Q11.2 site. If on final analysis, you're able to identify the probe attached to chromosome 22, but the second probe that should be on the long arm of 22Q at the 11.2 loci is absent, this is evidence of 22Q11 deletion syndrome, and the diagnosis is established. Okay, so just to make sure I have it correct, on a normal test, you should see two probes. One marks chromosome 22, and the other is specific for the 22Q11 region. An abnormal test, on the other hand, is when the probe for 22Q11 is missing because it's unable to bind the missing genetic material. And this confirms the microdeletion. You mentioned that FISH is classically done. Are there any other options for genetic testing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, this is continually evolving. And because fish is relatively insensitive, especially when there's atypical deletion, there's many alternatives now. DNA microarray testing. There's also a technique called multiplex ligation-dependent probe amplification. Both of those allow for more precise screening of 22Q11 and other genetic mutations at one time. I would argue we should be doing chromosomal microarrays now. They're now covered by Georgia Medicaid if you have the right ICD-10 code for diagnosis, which is pretty easy to get. And it makes screening super easy to do, and it's affordable for patients. I think if you have private insurance, I think I paid $42 to get a chromosomal microarray. And this is important because not only are you screening just for specific DeGeorge syndrome, but in some of the more vague presentations, you're able to see other mutations, whether they have another mutation or not, that could add to our OMAM database. But also it could be very useful for parents. And specifically for DeGeorge syndrome, there's evidence that 30% of the deletions in 22Q syndrome are atypical, and those will not be detected by fish. 
There's also a high incidence of multiple mutations. So kids with DeGeorge can have other genetic abnormalities, and those would be picked up on chromosomal microarray. Wow, this seems like it gets complex fairly quickly. It'll be interesting to see how these multi-genetic testing panels are used as more of a broad-based evaluation of children with developmental delay. So a take-on point is that if your suspicion is high, genetic testing with a FISH or one of the other options like a DNA microarray or MLPA can help make the diagnosis. This would probably be a great time to get help from a genetic specialist if available to make sure you're, you're making the right decision for your patient. So tell us, if we suspect a patient to have 22Q11 deletion syndrome, or even if the diagnosis is already confirmed, what are the other tests that are needed? Yeah, these children really need multidisciplinary care with careful coordination by their primary care physician, especially in populations that are more at risk. Lower socioeconomic populations really need help from the primary care physician to coordinate the care. If you're in a site that has a 22Q11 clinic, it's incredible for families to not have to go to six subspecialty visits. They can go to one place and get all the care. There's sites in every state for the George syndrome children. First, if you're in the initial diagnostic period, they need an urgent echocardiogram uh, with a panel of labs, a CBC with a differential looking for lymphopenia and thrombocytopenia. Also get a serum calcium and parathyroid for screening for hypocalcemia. In the neonates, a chest radiograph can be obtained to evaluate for thymic hypoplasia. Renal ultrasound also will be helpful to detect any structural abnormalities there. With Jude, they also did an esophagram to look for any aortic rings. 22Q honestly can affect almost every organ system. Thanks, Charles. It seems at a minimum these patients will require several different types of subspecialty care, including cardiology, endocrinology, and allergy immunology. How can our general pediatricians better coordinate care for our patients' long list of specialists? Yeah, I think this is probably the most important part of this talk. One thing that I want to talk about um, that I was not aware of in residency is the Katie Beckett waiver, especially for patients that are private pay patients. When we started therapy after evacuation in April 2019, our insurance was covering 20 total speech therapy visits a year, which got him through three weeks. After that, it was costing me about $500 a month to get his therapies, and that is not sustainable for 99% of our patients. There's a Katie Beckett waiver program in every single state where the kids with special needs and disabilities can get Medicaid as their secondary insurance. It is a very arduous process. Please tell your patients to always make a copy because they're going to have to get copies of all their therapy notes, copies of their official evaluation from the school board, and about 80 pages for them to fill out. Make sure they make a copy because the Medicaid office lost mine three times. Well, it's incredibly frustrating. I'm happy to include a, a link for more information about the Katie Beckett waiver uh, in our show notes and our description. So how, how is Jude doing now that you're back in Augusta and he's receiving all of this multidisciplinary care and ongoing therapy? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is probably the most important thing we can talk about. I think I said that before, but I'm going to make it the second most important thing we can talk about um, is therapy. When Jude came back, he was able to enroll at Apparel Academy and receive PTOT and speech integrated into his educational times where he was getting all of his therapies in the classroom and then pulled aside multiple times a week for his therapies. There's so many things in the therapy world that I was not aware of, just learning activities of daily living for him. He had such bad low-tone pronation that he could not run. 
All of these things really affected his mental health, where he was starting to do self-injury because he couldn't keep up with his brothers. Now, after getting him in the appropriate AFOs for his low-tone pronation and a year of therapy, he's able to run. He can ride a bike without training wheels. He is able to speak, which has been an incredible change in his quality of life, just being able to talk and to express himself. It's not completely articulable, but it's getting better. So getting in speech PT and OT is just so important. And without the Katie Beckett waiver, kids that don't have Medicaid as a primary insurance will not get speech PT and OT. And a lot of times the parents will be too shameful to admit they don't want to pay for it, so they're not going to tell you. Wow, this is an incredible story about how early intervention can be really meaningful for children with 22Q11. Kind of stepping back and thinking about more context with your family, how are your other boys, Charlie, Daniel, and Otis, doing with all this? Yeah, Zach, I think this is a really good question for the primary care pediatrician as we seek to care for the entire family. It's been really hard, especially on the older child. It's interesting if you look at data on the mental health issues with families that have a child with special needs, the neurotypical children, the majority, the vast majority of them have some mental health issues at some point in life. For my oldest son, it's probably been the hardest because he witnessed the incident in Peru and all the screaming and the chaos, and we forgot to call him. It took probably 24 hours before we called him, and the first thing he said to me is, is Jude still dead, Dad? So that, combined with just watching his little brother struggle, and combined with the fact that Jude gets some special treatment because he can't do certain things and he needs help with things. So he's getting more attention just out of necessity from his parents has created yeah, lots of issues for them and for us as parents figuring out how do we take care of Jude and his needs, also care for the needs and now the new needs that are created in our older children. Thanks, Charles. I think that's really insightful hearing about how your other children have, have lived through this. How are you and Ricky doing? As a parent, I cannot imagine what you two have went through. Yeah, I think that's a really great point as well. Primary care physician is realizing that the majority of marriages end in divorce in families that have a child with special needs. And it adds a lot of stress to marriage. We're doing really well now. We have been through a lot of counseling. So everyone needs to go see their therapist. Even if you don't think you need one, you do. This made me have a push at our clinic at Christ Community. We're incorporating behavioral health integrated care into every single primary care visit. So every well child checkup at Christ Community Health Center where I work now has access to counseling. If you're a cash pay patient included in your $25 payment, if you have insurance, it's just included in your well child visit for the whole family. Thanks so much for sharing all this. As children with 22Q11 grow up to young adults, is there anything else that we need to keep in mind while caring for them? Yeah, I think there's a lot. And my fear as a parent, as we said before, as a physician, I focused in on all of these physical concerns. But as a parent, my biggest fear for Jude is, I keep hearing in the back of my head, 38% risk of inpatient schizophrenia by the age of 30 is one study that was published. I and mean, that's terrifying. So really controlling their behavior and developmental symptoms early on is a very good predictor of long-term psychiatric issues. So controlling ADHD, helping them with language so they're not as frustrated, trying to get them to sleep while there's central apnea and obstructive apnea issues in these children. Other things that we have to watch for with the chromosomal microarray is other genetic issues that they could have that might not be diagnosed if they received a fish probe. Also looking for autoimmune diseases, autoimmune cytopenias, thyroid disease. So doing routine blood studies that are enumerated in that 2011 document that Zach is going to attach. Overall, we should be really 
careful when transitioning these adolescents to adult healthcare services because they're at risk of losing this multidisciplinary approach, really trying to equip the parents the best we can as we transition to adult medicine. Well, Charles, thanks so much for coming today. This has been a great conversation. I know I've learned so much. Is there anything else you'd like to our audience to know about 22Q11 before we wrap things up? Yeah. In summary, remember that classically neonates with 22Q11 will have cardiac abnormalities, hypoplastic thymus and hypocalcemia. But every patient doesn't read the book and doesn't look like they're supposed to, as in my son Jude. There's many children that don't have heart disease and those children will go undiagnosed. If you don't think about 22Q, you're never likely to diagnose it. So keep it in the back of your head. Maybe more importantly, consider doing chromosomal microarray in kids. If you see craniofacial abnormalities, it combined with some developmental delay now that it's accessible and affordable. Honestly, we should all be more like the great Reda Basali here at Augusta University and do thorough histories and physical exams on every single patient that we see. Get to know your families. That can add to your diagnosis, learning about um, your families and their situations. One thing in closing that I would like to say, I think that we all need to take a look at the way we view people with disability. I have to confess there was a time when I looked at Jude standing next to my oldest child and I got really angry and I thought to myself, everyone is always going to view him as lesser. And I just started crying. And then I realized deep in my own heart, there was a part of me that saw him as lesser. And if we're honest, there's a part of us that is prone to seeing people different than us as lesser. And especially when it comes to disabilities, because we're so hardwired by you're only valuable in what you can do and what you can give. And Jude has taught me so much over the last five and a half years of his little life. He is such a joyful kid, and he's taught us so much about just enjoying the little things in life. He wants to grow up to be a rock troll from Trolls World Tour. And yeah, I think that it's important as we are taking care of these patients to really examine our own hearts to see how do we view them and do we really love them and value them and not see them as a disease process and not see them as a genetic syndrome, but see them as valuable human beings that really can teach us a lot if we're humble enough to receive it. Thanks, Charles. You have a very unique perspective, and I think we can all learn something valuable from your experience. As we wrap things up, we have one more treat for our listeners. Jude, take it away. Hi, I'm Jude. Thanks for listening to this podcast. <laughs> Thanks, Jude, and thank you for listening to this episode from the Department of Pediatrics at the Medical College of Georgia. Additional thanks to Dr. Paul Mann and Dr. Jacqueline Chan, who also contributed to this episode. If you have comments, suggestions, or feedback, you can email us at mcgpediatricpodcast at augusta.edu. Remember that all content during this episode is intended for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be used as medical advice to diagnose or treat any particular patient. We look forward to speaking with you on our next episode of the MCG Pediatric Podcast.